When's the last time you read a report? I don't mean skim. I mean seriously sat down and truly thought through the report you were reading. If you're anything like me, it's been a while. I usually download the white papers and reports and put them in a folder, often never to be opened again. Why is that? I think we all know the answer. It's because they're often boring. The font is small, the paragraphs are thick, and the words are often confusing. Even when you do force yourself to read it, you're often left more confused than before. Is this how you want your prospects and customers to feel when they read a report you've commissioned? Probably not. But how can we make research interesting? How can we make it engaging? And most importantly, useful? I'm delighted to talk to Gunny Scarfo from Nonfiction Research today. Nonfiction is a research company that, and I quote, gleefully violates the norms of traditional research in a crusade to understand the informal, unfiltered lives of customers. Their research includes everyone from prisoners to sex workers to bankers and the average person. And they've worked with incredible brands like Disney and Public.com. They also published a fascinating report on the secret financial lives of Americans last year. And we'll dive into that in the episode. My aim with this episode was to explore how Gunny and his team do their research. And most importantly, how do they make their reports interesting? Because they really are interesting. And as I mentioned on the episode, one of my favorite types of reports to read. Not only that, but their research techniques allow them to really understand their customer inside out. We went really deep in this episode, and here you'll find insights on how to truly understand your customer, and it's not with focus groups, <laughs> what immersive research really means, and how to make research useful while also publishing your findings in an interesting way. Oh, and before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know that we've just launched the FinTech Marketing Slack group. Yep, it's a Slack community where you can meet other fintech marketers and founders, engage in group discussions with industry experts, and chat about upcoming podcast episodes. You can join now at fintechmarketinghub.com forward slash Slack. Without further ado, let's hear from Gunny. What is one type of report title that you see the report and you immediately roll your eyes? Oh, probably the future of fill in the blank. Uh, not because it's not a, a worthwhile endeavor to explore the future of some industry or some audience or something like that, but because oftentimes those future of reports are indistinguishable from the future of report that came out last year or the year before that. or uh, And, and they, they often have either what I would say are like super incremental sort of like <laughs> the future changes, like things that are like obviously clearly underway. Or they talk about the future in like the Jetsons, like when we have like a lunar base on the moon, here's what this thing will look like. And I find that sort of um, report is often lacking uh, inspiration. 
It's, it's lacking the thing that, that is far enough away that you are excited by it and you want to go chase after it, but is not necessarily obvious. That's a good answer. You're saying there's a bit of lack of creativity, a lack of wanting to be more inspiring. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, research, I feel like uh, if, if you're in middle school, you have certain pressures to be a certain way. Uh, and in research, you have certain pressures to be a certain way. And I think the the pressure that most researchers feel is to be uh, two things. One is, uh, the word we use is professional. We, we use that in a bit of a derogatory way. Like you're just supposed to look buttoned up, like you, you have the answers and that you're certain of everything, that there are numbers and graphs and this sort of thing. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure on that. Um, and there's a lot of pressure also on being on trend. Like even if researchers aren't doing trend reports, which have a tremendous amount of value, reports often veer towards like this trend that everyone's talking about because it's a very safe way to do research. If you produce something that looks professional, but at the same time, it's like hitting common trends that everyone's talking about, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> but you, yeah. if, if you're looking to actually take that report and you're not the researcher, but you're the company who's buying that research or reading that research, and you're looking to understand the, the secrets of your audience or the, the lifeblood of your audience, those are not the two things that you're uh, hoping that your, your researcher is being pressured by. Yeah, that's interesting. And it kind of follows on to my next question, which is, what, what do most modern day reports do wrong, in your opinion? And you've touched on one, which is lack of kind of wanting to take that risk. Man. And maybe just not. Yeah. So yeah, tell me. <laughs> they really like open a, a crazy box. <laughs> there are so many things that we feel like research does wrong. And we are constantly uh, struggling not to fall into those potholes. Mm. One is they often are commissioned by companies or industries. And the real problem with that is not so much the bias that you might think of dollars influencing research. It's more that they typically start with pre-existing concepts that make sense in an industry or make sense in a company. But when you go to talk to everyday people about it, they don't even have a, a referent for that word. Uh, so, you know, you can't go ask people like, what do you think about embedded finance? Uh, that's an industry term. You can't talk to people about that. And so even though most researchers are well aware of this, I don't think we as an industry do a good enough job of getting out of the, um, the bubble that we're in and getting into everyday people. And the more that an, an industry or category or company is cliquish, the harder it is to step out of it. And so if you've ever been around someone and you ask them what they do for a living and they tell you what they do for a living, but you still, by the time they're done, don't know what they do for a living, <laughs> that's what report, that's what research reports do. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that that's one of the biggest things. The, the, the second thing I'd say would be, we try to make our reports eclectic. So the, they don't just take from 
other reports or obvious questions, but our reports are influenced just as much by literature, hip hop, uh, things that are not normally considered part of the business world. But guess what? They're part of the everyday world of real people, and they are often uh, eloquent at uh, explaining or expressing what people go through and what people feel. So we're always trying to be non-business-like, and I think that is where most reports fail. They're, they're, they're too business-like. So often it's a problem of language, of connotation, of using the right words. I'm wondering, is that also the case in a B2B world? If you're doing a research, if you're, you're researching executives, is this also a problem? Well, it depends on what you're studying. But if what you're studying is, so obviously like j- jargon is a lot more permissible in B2B research as long as everyone's clear about what that term means, which, uh, here's the secret. Uh, most of the time they're not, mm-hmm. uh, these terms get like, you know, bandied about, and then everyone interprets them in very different ways. But even in B2B research, and we, we do a fair amount, oftentimes the, the things that are most interesting are the things that people are the least certain about. And so mm-hmm. in B2B research, you still have people experiencing emotions that they don't want to talk about necessarily. We were recently working on a, uh, on a study of micropreneurs. Uh, we've, we've, we've done it across a, a few different clients in a few different ways. And when you talk to business owners, especially small business owners, and if there are small business owners listening to this right now, they will uh, understand this. There is a set of emotions that you go through as a, as a business owner that end up shaping a lot of your decisions. And it's like oh, fear, uh, oh, shame, um, ambition, uh, inspiration, uh, the difficulty of integrating the thing that inspires you with the thing that allows you to keep the business running. Uh, all of these things are somewhat personal struggles that that small business owners feel. If you are a business looking to market to those small business owners, how can you not explore and understand what people are really going through? So obviously, like uh, industry terms make more sense in B2B, but it's never excusable to leave people's entire like emotional being uh, and the things that they might not normally share out of the research. I mean, as 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 many marketers like to say, businesses at the end of the day are still humans, are still people, um, and and people therefore also take a lot of their decisions based on emotions. And if you're just completely dismissing the emotions, then you're missing a big part of the buying process. That's exactly right. And ironically, um, I feel that in the fintech world, a lot of mostly B two B. Um, fintechs will talk a lot about democratization and then you go to they publish a report that's full of corporate speak and jargon and you're just like guys no (laughs) it doesn't work Um, and then I was actually I'm just more curious do you still think do you think that people still read reports because I see so many of them and I, I download a lot of them I sacrifice my email and my name and all that just to get that white paper but you just open the pdf and you're like oh my god this wall of text I wonder, do people still read reports? What do you think? 
I think it's yes and no. There are definitely people who read reports. Um, <laughs> we had uh, the very first report we ever published, uh, which you and I have uh, talked talk about, The Secret Financial Lives of Americans. We published it in a PDF format. And so we thought of that report, we thought of that PDF file, which is still sitting on a server, which people can go download a PDF. We thought of that as the report. We thought of that as the output of what we had done. And uh, early on, uh, a, a good friend of our company and someone who's given us some great advice kind of teased us a little bit about using a PDF. And he was like, a PDF? Guys, like, I can't even read this on my mobile phone. And uh, we, we really took that to heart. And um, in subsequent research that we've released, just in terms of format, as you're saying, like, do people read reports? What we've tried to do is think of the output of our research as being a certain set of ideas. Like that's the real output, our understandings of an audience that no one else has had before. And then a short set of recommendations about what companies ought to do with that. And um, now we use video, um, audio, like sort of like podcast format. We've had uh, people make uh, art films inspired by the research. Uh, there's still a PDF if you want to download the PDF. There's a web version that's like much shorter. I think the game with research nowadays, uh, as with many types of content, is to produce it in ways that people can, you know, take it how they want it, but it'll still hit them hard enough so that you're not sacrificing the insights or the emotion that you're looking to produce uh, by creating shorter content, but rather just making it uh, more, what's the fashionable word, digestible? Yeah. Accessible also. Yeah. Because when things are good, I think a lot of times like the, the emphasis on format is wise because people are consuming ideas in more and more formats. Like people uh, are doing audiobooks now in ways that they were absolutely not 10 years ago. And audiobooks have been around that whole time. Podcasts have been around for 20 years, but now people are consuming them more. But so there, there is wisdom to that. But I, th I think the thing that sometimes gets missed is uh, that if something's good, people will take on inconvenient things to do it. And so there's a, there's a pizza shop in Brooklyn that I used to walk, uh, I don't know, I would walk 30 minutes to this pizza shop and I would pass by eight other pizza shops because I wanted to go to this pizza shop because that's how good it was. And so uh, when you're producing anything, whether it's research or content, I think you have to ask yourself, do I want to be one of those eight pizza shops that are duking it out on uh, geographic proximity, or do I want to be that pizza shop where people walk past eight pizza shops to get to that pizza shop? And either one is an acceptable choice, but you don't want to get caught in the middle. So mm -hmm. yeah, with research, we do try to chop it up in a lot of different formats, but at the end of the day, we want to be that pizza shop with the dope slice that, that people will walk 30 minutes to get to. And Sometimes we do that and sometimes we miss, but that's always the goal. I really like that analogy. And it's kind of reminding me a little bit of what I hear in other podcasting industries or, or um, people that I admire who say, you want to aim to be the favorite of your customer, be the favorite podcast, the favorite blog, the favorite 
research, maybe. And when you're someone's favorite, it doesn't mean you have to be the best, because favorite doesn't always mean best, and plus best is subjective, right? But favorite means that they will go the extra lengths to um, to read your reports. And honestly, uh, the secret lives of financial, sorry, the secret financial lives of Americans, which we'll touch on a bit, is probably one of the best reports I've read. And because of that, I probably will go the extra mile, whatever that means, to read more of your reports. So, yeah. I like that analogy. <laughs> well, first of all, I love the way you put that is like strive to be someone's favorite. That's that's just a fantastic thing to carry around with you every day, no matter what you do. Um, and second of all, thank you for what you said about that particular report. Yeah. Um, also, well, just my final thought on this was, I think it's interesting what you're saying about accessibility. And this is also something fintech companies say, you know. Uh, if we want to provide accessibility with payments, then we need to offer Apple Pay, we need to offer QR codes, we need to offer open banking, all these payment methods, because uh, the modern day consumer is very demanding and will only pay the way they want to pay. And so when it comes to research, I think you're right, kind of, you want to sh- do PDFs, videos, do it all the different formats, and people will pick and choose the one that they like best. So I thought that was also an interesting kind of bridge there. But I kind of want to talk now a little bit about how you do research at nonfiction, because what I really like is that you focus on telling stories and, you know, which is much more, which is better and a lot more compelling than pie charts and graphs. So I kind of want to talk, and you also call it immersive, which I really liked. So can you tell us a little bit what, what is immersive research? Yeah. So our fundamental belief is that people don't usually open up their souls to market researchers, but that creates a problem in market research. You know, market research, it shapes so much of our world in ways that um, the average person might not even realize. Like it shapes what products end up getting made, what products don't end up getting made, what features the products have, uh, what kind of services get offered, how partnerships, which partnerships happen and don't happen. Um, And market research often shapes the whole way that companies interact with customers, like from the vibe down to the actual services. Um, But we always say that consumer research is at the top of the cascade of business. Um, Not always, but often. And so... When you have at the top of that cascade, that research where people are not really opening up about their whole selves and lives and needs and desires and rational and irrational and all of this stuff, you end up with a world where things are made for the Instagram version of people rather than the real version of people. And that's, that's a problem. So our main approach to doing research is to uh, go wherever we need to go in order to find that truth, to find those answers. And so those are sometimes very uh, traditional techniques, but in these ways, we do a lot of one-on-one conversations with people, um, and we do plenty of quantitative studies. That's uh, an integral part of what we do. But we do those things alongside more immersive activities where We've been unchaperoned inside of a prison. We've built a software program from scratch to uh, collect public Spotify playlists to try to understand like 
what insights are in people's Spotify playlists. Um, we've done large studies on uh, intimacy and sexuality. Uh, we've talked to everyone from uh, doulas to uh, special forces operators to male and female escorts for one of our reports. And the reason we do that stuff, to us, it's not sensational. It's just what you would do if you actually wanted to understand people. <laughs> and so uh, at the end of the day, people tell us things that they've never told other people, even their closest friends sometimes. And when you're dealing with topics like money, uh, topics at the heart of fintech, we need to do that. You know, we, we need to do that. And so we, we take that approach and we take it uh, across any industry that we work in. No, we can do that for Disney, for Goldman Sachs, for uh, for public. I know uh, Katy Perry is one of your like thirty figures in uh, yes. in fintech. She's fantastic. We just wrapped up a project yep. with her. Wow, I'm chatting to her next week, actually. So yeah, she's she's uh, a joy of a human being and uh, ridiculously smart. You know, we we do things in the crypto space with Coinbase and. and Everything to like, I don't know, flaming hot Cheetos. But whatever the topic is, you're diving in to really understand like, what are the answers to the questions that we really need to understand about people. And if we are spending time in people's houses uh, or talking to bizarre experts, it just feels like part of what the process ought to be. As a, as a marketer, I can just imagine that being such a fascinating job. You must meet so many interesting people like... I can just imagine that, it's, I mean, I can imagine it just being a lot of fun because you get some perspectives that many of us will never be able to get. So it must be. It is a, uh, a borderline criminal amount of fun to do this work if you're the kind of person who uh, who loves understanding people. Um, I, I, yeah. I will say yeah. uh, two things about it is first, there is an element of vulnerability that a good researcher needs. Like if you are going to delve into these topics, if you are going to ask people to be the deepest version of themselves with you, you can't do that in a real way unless you are present in the same, in the same way, in the same space. Um, and the second thing I would say is doing this kind of research, it really changes you as a person. Mm. We did a, <laughs> we did a project a few years ago on, um, for a nonprofit around uh, essentially like uh, the future of the women's movement in, in, in some ways is the best way I can summarize the research. And uh, we, were, we were looking to understand uh, like aspects of women's lives that they felt strongly were unheard and needed to change. And it was the unheard part that felt a little tricky. But we did this research for maybe six months, and at the end of it, part of it involved reading somewhere around 20,000 responses from women about questions like, uh, what was the most powerful you've ever felt in your life? Or what was the least powerful you've mm -hmm. ever felt in your life? And when you read that many responses from people, it changes you as a person. Wow. You yeah. begin to... First of all, uh, that particular project made me a much better husband, I think. Uh, mm, and um, But in general, when you do this kind of work, it makes you empathetic to, a, to an extreme degree. I find myself 
crying at almost minor things uh mm. and it's but it's it's a good it's a good way of being if you're if you're a researcher or not just as a researcher but as anyone who needs to understand an audience so uh if you are a, a small business person if you are whatever it might be if you have customers to understand people at that level of intimacy is really an incredible experience it's honestly something that i I aspire to do also because it's just incredibly fascinating understanding what what triggers people. I mean, when you're working in marketing, what you're saying is also incredibly important for marketers. You need to be interested in what makes people buy something because if not, you're never going to be able to adapt the messaging appropriately. And so my question was going to be, you know, marketers who are listening to this and and who fully agree with you and they say, I just, I want to be able to talk to my customers every day and I want to... I want to understand how they're thinking, how they're feeling. Um, I know you've mentioned that you dislike focus groups <laughs> and that they're not very effective. What what can someone who obviously is not a full-time market researcher, how can they get a little, little you know, slice of what you're doing? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things come to mind immediately. The first is you have to figure out the right questions to ask. Mm. And that usually, those questions are usually not, at least for a reasonably mature business, they're not the really like, why do you buy this? Why don't you buy this? That is what you're trying to discover. But if you ask those questions, if you have your conversations around those things that are like right on the nose, uh, you find everything that you're going to find within the first, uh, you know, day of doing that research or people start to tell you the same things. But oftentimes when you are looking to understand why people might buy or why people might not buy or what people might buy that doesn't yet exist, which is a fair amount of the research Mm -hmm. we do, oftentimes you want to understand uh, more about the occasion than about the purchase decision. So if you ask questions that are right on the nose about the purchase decision, you get really expected answers. But when you ask people about the purchase occasion or the the need that they have that's leading them to buy this thing that you are offering, you often get much richer, much richer insights that are in the end, ironically, though surprisingly, much more practical to understanding the purchase decision. Uh, the second thing I would say is uh, asking people for stories can be far more powerful than asking for their opinion. So if you want to understand uh, what services or what features of a banking app uh, people might want, you could ask, what features of a banking app do you wish you had? And you will usually get pretty bad responses that you'll get a couple obvious ones and then just a bunch of like people don't know but what you can ask instead is something along the lines of like tell us a story of when you didn't know something about your finances and it caused you embarrassment or caused you inconvenience now that's a lot less direct But the things that you discover from those stories are going to be so rich and people are going to be able to put their finger on that story much quicker than they will what they want out of a banking app. 
And from those stories, you will be able to uh, figure out what are these features. And they will be things that you never would have imagined. Um, so I think those, those are, for us, those are sort of the, the fundamentals of, of doing that research. When you are a small business and you're not hiring some research firm to help you, you don't need to, to do that stuff. Just go find the, the meaningful stories in the lives of your customers and then you'll easily be able to connect that back to how to serve them better and hence make money off of that. Yeah, I love that. Ask stories, ask about the story rather than a specific need. And it reminds me of the job to be done framework. And I'm kind of curious what you think about it and what you know about it. It's something that we touch on uh, a lot. We are sort of anti-framework <laughs> is the best way to yeah, describe yeah. us. Fair. Not that frameworks are uh, bad or useless, but in research, we try to avoid them. And the reason why is because we find that the more we work in frameworks, the more we find ourselves bending what we hear from customers, from real people, into these frameworks. And there's, there's a, a, a loss of signal that happens when we do that. Now, oftentimes we work with marketers, with agencies, with marketing consultants, who then take our work and put it into frameworks from which they can work. And that makes sense. Uh, we, we personally try to avoid them because we, we, we try to find like the, the deepest truths and then to be able to communicate them in a narrative, whatever narrative makes sense. Um, and that's partly a stylistic decision on our part and partly trying to avoid that signal loss. So uh, the, the jobs to be done framework is, is smart and um, done the right way can really distill things down and avoid some of the marketing nonsense that uh, we've all been bequeathed by previous generations. Uh, so in general, I think it's a smart framework, but we, we tend to avoid frameworks in general. I'd like to talk a little bit now about uh, your report, Secret Financial Lives of Americans, which I believe that every everyone listening who works in fintech should go away and read. Although it is the US, it's still incredibly relevant to anyone around the world because, as you've mentioned before, it really reveals some the intimate parts of managing money. My first question is, how do you ensure that you make reports interesting and obviously you have with secret financial lives of Americans. How do you, where do you put the focus on? Uh, how do we make reports interesting? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I don't know how much we think about interesting. Maybe we do. Um, I'd say that the, the first thing that we try to do is we just try to discover something that is emotional and not already talked about. If you could just do those two things with your research, you would be, uh, you know, in, in great shape. Um, and so, you know, the secret financial lives of Americans, um, everything that we've been talking about, you and I, in this conversation is, is pretty apparent in that, in that report. So we didn't want to start with the future of financial services. We wanted to start with, Hey, what is going on with with people, with human beings, and money? We wanted to start there, and we wanted to go as far as we possibly could 
into understanding the parts about people's lives with money that they don't always talk about first, and then go study what's going on within financial services, and then find the gap and try to build a bridge. That was our approach to that research. I think it's, it's a pretty uh, sensible approach in general, no matter what you're researching. Like, go spend time with the people uh, and ignore what your company is trying to sell them. Don't think about that right now. Ignore whether or not your uh, marketing, uh, whether your brand tone or brand ethos is right or wrong. Like, forget all that stuff. Just go spend time with people and observe them and talk to them in their real lives and then work backwards. So we, we tried to do that and we heard really uh, inspirational and really heartbreaking stories uh, along the way from people in that. But at the end of the day, we felt that there were a handful of unmet needs that everyday Americans had that were not really being addressed by the mainstream financial services industry. And the reason for a lot of that is because no one in the mainstream financial services industry really thought it was their job. You know, like we have a very uh, specialized industry. Like the more you think about it, the more you realize that there's like everything is so, uh, is so atomized in the industry and the way that FinTech has blown up traditional value stacks in the last five to 10 years and, and even before has just further done that in ways that are positive for people because people now have a uh, better service on all of these things, on all these little uh, minute niche concerns. But the stuff that's still missing is uh, are some of these unmet needs that most people don't really think about as being part of the financial services industry. So for instance, uh, if you ask people about like what they need from banking or just even banking, people will tell you they, they want their bank to stay open another couple hours so that they can get there after work or I don't know, like small things. Uh, they want higher limits on their check deposit or something like that for, for their mobile app. but when you just talk to people about money, you start hearing things really quickly like, am I being paid fairly? I don't know if the amount of money I'm making from my job is high or low. How do I, should I be asking for a raise? How do I ask for a raise? Uh, should I be trying to get a new job or stay at my current job? This, this doesn't sound like financial services stuff, right? But it is. Right. It's when, when you think about money, you can't just think about managing the assets that already exist within a person's finances. You have to understand their, their dreams, their hopes. Like, what are they trying to do? How do these people make more money? Not just from investment returns, but banking and nothing in financial services ever thought of themselves as really helping with that sort of thing. And so you've got accountants who help you do your taxes, and that's important. You've got uh, investment services, whether they're robo-advisors or RIAs uh, or um, the Merrill Lynch's of the world who will help you invest your money. You've got uh, people to help you understand your uh, expenditures. You've got people who will loan you money. All of these things are important. But A, there are some of these services about just earning more, about increasing household income that have just been forgotten 
by financial services. And B, we're still lacking a way to pull these together in the way that we have in other industries. So the example that we used in the report was uh, a primary care physician. A lot of Americans, many Americans have a primary care physician. It's your main doctor. And that doctor can't do surgery on you. That doctor, you don't want that doctor being your, uh, your radiologist or your, your orthopedic uh, expert, but they, their job is to organize a, a collection of experts and to see holistically what is going on in your physical life. It makes perfect sense. And we've all, we all understand it. Like that's the first person you go to and then they farm you out to specialists. It's a perfect model. But then you look at the financial services industry and you have the accountant, the RIA, the, the app that helps you, um, the, the public.com or whatever that like helps you invest. You've got all of these different atomized expertises, but we still don't have a role in the financial services industry that, that a lot of people could use <laughs> that would organize all of those experts under a single umbrella. And there are, there are some categories that sometimes claim to do that, but either they don't or they are only for the wealthy. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that our research showed us is that uh, people deserve more than that. And you use the word personal CFO, which I really like because you're kind of encapsulating everything you've just said in a term that many of us can understand. And you say in the report, anyone who can own that relationship, create the personal CFO, the, the fintech who can do that will succeed at meeting the needs of customers, right? That's it. Uh, we, we can't predict how the market will play out, but it seems obvious to us that in the future, this personal CFO service will exist. And that personal CFO will not be capable of doing your taxes, will not be capable of doing asset allocation, will not be capable of many of the specialist tasks, but they will own that relationship. And one of the risks for uh, an industry where people are not building relationships, but rather just doing these atomized sorts of niche roles is that whoever takes over that relationship as that personal CFO is going to have a disproportionate influence on within each of those specialist categories who gets used. And so it's something that uh, the financial services industry is uh, reckoning with, I, I would say, because if you are a, uh, a large bank that is spending a whole bunch of money on marketing and you are not really developing a personal relationship, uh, but relying on inertia. One of the executives that we uh, interviewed said uh, something like, you really have to torture someone to get them to leave a bank. That was a bank executive who said that. I was like, oh, damn, that's a horrific thing for anyone to say. But if you are counting on that, in the future, it, you're going to have problems because when that personal CFO arrives, you have nothing now. Uh, and that personal CFO has everything. And all you are is a commodity who could be exchanged. You are the most fungible entity on the earth at that point. And so 
we believe that there will be at some point a race among all of these different types of financial companies to figure out who's going to be the first one to nail the personal CFO. And we've seen a couple entities try and fail. They just, they didn't get it right. We were cheering for them. But uh, when that happens, uh, who's it going to be? Is it going to be a fintech? Is it going to be uh, an RIA? Will it be a Will it be some massive bank, a Chase or Bank of America or Barclays sort of entity? Um, we don't know the answer to that. And each one of them has particular advantages and disadvantages. Considering all the knowledge you have on the secret financial lives of Americans, you've talked to so many, you've read a lot, you've done so much research, uh, probably more than than many people in the fintech industry. Imagine you could speak to like everyone in the fintech industry with you had like a direct connection to their ear right now just you've got i don't know five minutes ten minutes what is something you would tell them considering what you know about customers what is something you would tell them that would help them meet those specific customer needs my first piece of advice slash uh imploring of of fintech teams and and business owners would be the obvious one, uh, which would be spend time with the people you're serving because of all business cults. And I I don't mean that in a bad way, but in a good way of like a passionate, tight-knit community. uh, FinTech has to be towards the top. You know, it is a very tight-knit community with a lot of jargon uh not in a bad way but in a in a way where these terms have been abstracted and there's a distance between the world that you live in and the everyday people who you are indeed helping and i think fintech is way more connected to the people than large corporations are um because they're fast they're nimble but the the thing you have to counter is that fintech bubble and it's a, it's a beast. You, you need to be in the bubble. It's not that you need to leave the bubble and never go back. You need that bubble. But you need to exist in two places at once. You need uh, a double consciousness of within the bubble and within the people. That, that would be the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, it seems to us that there are going to be two worlds at some point in the near future within financial services. One of those worlds is the almost like invisible automated sort of fintech entity. And that's a good place to be if you can fit into the things you need to fit into, if you provide your service as well as or better than your competitors. The second world is the world of building relationships where you might be at parity or even behind the services offered your fintech competitors, but your ability to manage a relationship is really good. And so maybe you don't have the most complete offering, but you have tremendous relationships. You understand the audience. And you're able to provide a good, uh, I don't know, UX, CX kind of experience. Either one of those places is a strong place to play. You get stuck in the middle, and you've got mediocre relationship and mediocre sort of uh like functionality it seems like it's a really dangerous place to be yeah there's there's a lot i want to unpack there but 
two things before I forget. I love what you're saying about relationship, because to me, that's why marketing is so important in fintech, because that's what also makes us different to incumbents is that we're actively trying to build a relationship with our customers by educating them, by connecting with them online. Uh, and this is what I'm trying to do with this podcast is to help fintech marketers build that relationship. Actually, I feel like you've just written the copy for me. <laughs> <laughs> and the the second thing I wanted to say is I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, hang out more with your customers. Apart from focus groups, which is weird, like artificial environment, which doesn't really work. How How can founders, marketers, anyone hang out more with their customers? What are some ideas? Yes. So um, the reason that we don't love focus groups for 97% of what we do, there is a 3% where we use them, but is because what you get out of focus groups is often heavily influenced by the dynamics in the room at the time. And you can't control those dynamics. So if you ask people, uh, you know, what kind of color do you think uh, this uh, this new car that we're making should be? You'll have one loud mouth who's like, ah, blue, let me tell you, blue is important. And now everyone who doesn't like blue has to make a decision. Am I going to speak up against the loud mouth? So there are these dynamics that are tough. Where focus groups are really useful is in understanding how people talk about things socially. And so if you, if you are trying to explore um, the types of shame and uh, embarrassment and difficulty that people feel around money, a focus group is not a great place to do it. Not saying you can't get anything good from it, but why would you put a bunch of people who are strangers in a room together and ask them to share their deepest secrets? That's, that's insanity. Uh, however, if you are trying to understand, oh, what's a good example of this? How people who drive a certain type of car talk to people who drive another type of car <laughs> and how they justify their purchase or something like that, that you want a focus group. You want people in a room together and you just want to like watch the dynamics because you're understanding the dynamics themselves. Uh, but the... So I feel like uh, fintech companies, just companies in general, often like rely on focus groups because they feel easy. You can get a lot of people in a room at one time. So it, it, it's kind of the, the lazy choice uh, oftentimes for people. And so you want to avoid that. But I think the best ways that we found that you can get people to open up are in one-on-one -on -one conversations, not interviews, but conversations. And the person that you want to send into that conversation is the person on your team who naturally makes everyone feel uh, comfortable having an intimate conversation. Uh, if you're not going to hire outside for that sort of thing, you got to find the person on your team. Maybe it's uh, Jane in accounting who just is the person who everyone tells their secrets to. Don't put your uh, CMO in that conversation just because it's marketing research. If your CMO is like uh, the person who interrupts people all the time and whatever, put Jane from accounting into the conversation. Like we can't stress enough how important it is 
to just create a genuine environment where people want to talk and they want to tell you things. So that's the first way to spend time with people. The, the second way to spend time with people is uh, to go into their lives, to watch them do the thing that you need to understand. And so you can do this either personally by going and literally hanging out with people while they do stuff, go with them on a trip to a bank, uh, go with them uh, or sit with them at their uh, proverbial kitchen table where they discuss whether to spend money on this or that. Watch them as they try to find, as they scroll through their uh, account to try to find transactions that they can eliminate to whatever it might be. But the other way you could do it is by asking people to make videos for you. Um, and in a, a COVID world, it's something that we've done a lot more of over the last 18 months or whatever it's been, um, where you can give people a mission and you can, you can find the right people and you can say, uh, I will pay you to make a video on your phone. It can be uh, shitty lighting, doesn't matter. Just like make a video of yourself doing this thing. And we guarantee you anonymity uh, through this contract. We will pay you to do it. And, um, and then the, the other trick to that is you can either just observe what they're doing, or as we talked about before, you can ask them to show you uh, something about a story that they've told you. Uh, and that's how you get to the deeper stuff. So we were doing a, uh, a research project on um, uh, people's desire to escape their everyday lives. Um, it was for a, a particular client. Uh, and we asked people, show us the part of your everyday life that you most want to like the, the boring thing that makes you feel like you're juggling too much in your life or it's just boring. Show us that. And the videos that came back from people were incredible. People were um, breaking down, talking about trying to manage like their household with their kids and everything that they're doing. And you get this really rich sort of insight back about people's real lives. And you didn't even have to leave your own home or office to do it. It just got delivered to you. Um, so I think those are the easiest ways that without um, surveys are great too, but you run into a bunch of methodological things where if you're not trained, you can easily uh, per pervert your insights in a way that uh, leads you down a wrong path. So we're big fans of surveys, but your question was, how do you, if you're a business owner, if you're a fintech, how do you just go out and do it? Those are the ways that would probably be the, the most accessible. Wow. Well, I, I need to re-listen to this and take notes because <laughs> the, the, the stuff that you're saying is incredibly valuable. I'm also very aware of time. I just have, so I just, there's so many questions that I, I want to ask you, but um, I will just finish off with one more, which is just out of curiosity. Uh, what is the most interesting person or who is the most interesting person you've ever interviewed for a research project? Wow. Um... There are two that come to mind. The first one is, uh, uh, I won't tell the full story of it so that I can invest more in the second one I'm about to say, but uh, we were doing research for, uh, for FICO, uh, and this is public research. Uh, the report was entitled something like uh, what, what people want from their banks but aren't offered 
um, it's a, it's kind of a cool, cool report. It's, it's out there publicly available. And we talked to this guy who had lived this really tough life. Uh, his, his sister had been murdered when he was young. He was homeless for a time and, uh, he'd worked really hard to build his financial life up. And, uh, he and his wife, um, had this washing machine that, uh, they had bought used and it had, it was old at this point and it broke down and he went to buy a new washing machine. And it was the first moment in his life because of how he had progressed financially that he didn't have to take the least expensive option. He was able to buy the washing machine that he, that his family wanted. And, uh, he brought that washing machine home and, uh, spent all weekend doing the laundry because he was so proud of that washing machine. And his friends came to see him and they're like, Hey, you know, what'd you do this weekend? He was like, Oh, I did so much laundry. And he was just so proud about the washing machine. And that I'll, that'll always stay with me because it gets to that like symbolic value of money and like what making money really means in our lives and the, the pride that we take. But the conversation that I will probably say is the most interesting person was when we were researching intimacy in America, um, we spoke to male and female escorts, and the one female escort that uh, that I personally spoke to, she described how in in each person there is like a hole in your heart, and that her real job is not really the sexual aspect of what she does, but the real part of what she does is hearing like listening to the men that she spends time with and filling that hole in their heart through listening and care and a lack of judgment. And she says that, and uh, the, all of the escorts that we talked to told us this, she was just the most eloquent, uh, that many people don't have someone that they can be a hundred percent themselves with and not have any fear of judgment. And that is the real service that, that she provides. And I was so moved by her uh, talking about that just as a person. But I also realized that it was a metaphor, that it was valuable metaphorically for what we do as researchers and what every company does with their customers. And you can learn these lessons through the marketing industry, but you can also learn them really powerfully through this one female escort from Georgia who is probably better able to do this at a deeper level than all of the rest of us put together. And uh, that conversation was remarkable. And she is an inspiration to the work that we do. That, that is beautifully put. And I'm definitely going to have to think about that for a while because you're right. Well, Gunny, you've given us a lot of value. Uh, I really, I've really enjoyed this interview and I'm really impressed with how like deep we've been able to go. So thanks a lot for giving us such thoughtful answers. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me, but also thank you for the work that you're doing on this show. You know, the, the work that the fintech community is doing is some of the most important work that's going on in the world right now. And for you to be able to build a community and connect people and to, to fuel that growth is, uh, is important. So thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
You can find all the information and show notes over at fintechmarketinghub.com and then click on podcast. We've also got a fintech marketing Slack community where you can meet fellow fintech marketers and founders, ask podcast guest questions ahead of a show and attend exclusive online events with industry experts. We'd love to see you in there, hear your feedback and learn about the challenges you're currently facing in your role. To join, head to fintechmarketinghub.com forward slash Slack. That's all for today. See you in the Slack.